Last book of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, chapter 3. After we read these two passages, we'll say the catechism answers together, found in the back of the blue hymnal, from Lord's Day 23. Let's hear from Malachi chapter 3, the first three verses. Hear from God's holy word as it is read. Please give your attention to its reading. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Amen. And then if you would go to the book of Philippians, New Testament, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. Reading through verse 11. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. And our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 23. We'll say these answers together. Found on page 30, the back of our blue hymnal. Lord's Day 23. This is after the Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, so we're asking, believing all this, that's believing what is said in the Creed. What good does it do you, however, to believe all this? In Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me, of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, 
and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. So tonight we consider that first of the theological virtues, faith. And probably over the next couple of weeks, there's a couple of weeks before I want to get started on a, a new series in the mornings. I'm probably going to do an Old Testament book later on in January, but I may take a couple of weeks and speak on the, the other theological virtues. So we'll have faith and hope and love, that great triad, the the spiritual virtues that we are told to have. They're, they've been called uh, three beautiful sisters, faith and hope and love. And one day, faith and hope will fade into the background and it will be love that will reign with God and with his people forever. But tonight we consider that first of the theological virtues, faith and its place in making us right with God. It is called the instrument by which we receive the holiness of Christ. It is uh, that which God gives supernaturally to us. It is that without which no one is saved. We are saved and purified through this faith and through the work of Christ. In in the book of Malachi, we read this uh, prophecy from chapter 3. It begins by speaking about the messenger that would go before the Messiah. Of course, we know that is John the Baptist. But there is this wonderful prophecy. The the priests of Levi, the Levitical priests, uh, will be cleansed. The interesting thing about the chapter before in Malachi chapter 2 is that God spends some time chastising and condemning even the Levitical priests. Malachi chapter 2 Verse 1, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Then he goes on in verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. They were disobedient. They deserved the discipline of God. But then there is this this beautiful prophecy in chapter 3, That what will the Lord do and what will he do through this servant? He will purify the sons 
of Levi. He will make them pure. This comes in the wake of news that gives us much less confidence that the messenger of the Lord or the the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will appear suddenly and he will appear as the Lord of hosts himself. And who can stand at the day of his coming? This is one of those realities as you go to the Old Testament and you read about the prophecies of the Messiah, oftentimes there's a, a foreshortening. And what that means is that the prophet will often look forward and speak of the two comings of the Messiah, the first and the second, as we know them now, in one coming. And most often it is in judgment. Uh, He comes to shake the heavens and the earth and to find out who is righteous when he comes. We, of course, thank the Lord that when Jesus came the first time, He did not come in judgment, but he came to bear judgment. He came in grace and to make his people holy so that when he comes again, he will come and find those who have been made holy and righteous in him. The two comings of Jesus uh, operating that way. This, uh, This prophecy, though, regarding the sons of Levi being purified... It points forward to the New Testament doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, which is a wonderful doctrine that we all find great comfort in. The work of a priest is to offer to God sacrifices that please him, to work in the midst of the temple or in the midst of his people so that God may look upon his people who are joined to him in covenant and be pleased by what he sees. So the prophet, or the, the apostle Peter, speaks of this priesthood of all believers in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says this, You are a chosen race, speaking to the New Testament church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you, To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the priests that are pictured here in Malachi and the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, as we come forward to the post-resurrection state, the New Testament church, uh, the priests of God are no longer a special class of God's people, but are all the faithful who are called to bring themselves to the altar in faith, who are called to give their own lives as a living sacrifice of praise, not to offer an offering for sin, but to offer themselves in thanksgiving. This is our work as believers in the covenant of grace. We are made right before God in Jesus Christ. We're called to present ourselves as an offering of thanks. We know Romans chapter 12, verse 1 very well speaks of this. Beloved, I urge you, in light of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Hebrews 13, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is what we do in this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. We stand in grace because Romans chapter 5 tells us that we are justified, that is, cleansed and declared righteous by faith, by having faith in Jesus Christ. 
We have been declared fully righteous before God because of what Christ has done. This is what faith does. It receives that gift. But saving faith is not a dead faith. And we will see how and why that is true tonight. So what is true faith? The catechism speaks of this. True faith. What is true faith? What is saving faith? Here's a concise answer for us. True and saving faith is the spirit-enabled embrace of and resting upon our faithful God in Christ for the redemption offered by him through the promise of the gospel. Shorthand, it's resting on Christ for salvation and righteousness and holiness. That's what the gospel is. Jesus has done this. Believe in him, trust in him, look to him, and you will be forgiven. You will be declared righteous. But in order to have this saving faith, there are components that go along with it. And the first thing that we need to have is a a knowledge of what God says in his word. We need to know what God says about salvation and about our sin. What human beings know in their state of nature is not enough to be saved. Right? Unless you hear someone proclaim the good news, unless you read God's word in the scriptures, you will not have enough knowledge in your natural state to know that you need to be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, although the light of nature does manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, yet... The light of nature is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God which is necessary unto salvation. So the first part of saving faith is a knowledge, a knowledge of what God says, a knowledge of who Christ is. But that is not all that is contained in faith. People may know things about Jesus. They may know half-truths about Jesus. This certainly is a reality in our society, in our culture. Most people at least know something of who Jesus is and was. But oftentimes the answer is, well, Jesus was a a great teacher or he was some kind of social activist or something like that. No, we need to know the truth of who he is. So the first part of saving faith is knowledge. The The second part of saving faith is believing what the gospel says as true. This is called Assent. We assent to the truths of Scripture and of the gospel. Very simply, the message is this. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the elect. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of mankind. Uh, Someone can assent to the truthfulness of those propositions and still come short of saving faith. The Roman Catholic Church basically teaches that the essence of saving faith is something like assent. If you believe that what the church teaches about salvation is true, then you're you're good, right? Assent is basically what they teach. But there's another component that our catechism brings out that is really the heart and soul of saving faith. And it is very simply trust. It's resting in Christ. In other words, you need to know what the basic message of Scripture is in salvation. You need to assent to its truthfulness that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. He is the only Savior of of mankind, and I need a Savior. 
And then the third part, trusting and resting in him. That is, you look to Jesus Christ and you say, I trust in him for the salvation of my sin. I'm resting in him knowing that his salvation is affected towards me. Resting in him can also be described as receiving Christ or coming to Christ. John chapter 1 To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receive him. Jesus said to them, John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you have receiving, coming to Jesus, believing in him. And our catechism uses the phrase, all I need to do is accept this with a believing heart. Accepting. Resting, believing, receiving, coming to Jesus. That is that last component of saving faith. Trust and rest. It is vital when we speak of true faith. Accepting Jesus, coming to Jesus, resting in him, means that you find all that you need in him and nothing that you do not need. I'm not sure if if any of you have ever ever had this experience. This is a particular weakness of mine. When I'm really hungry, I start imagining the the perfect meal that I would want to have when I'm becoming famished. So I think I would love just a, a wonderful steak and garlic mashed potatoes and really buttery green beans to just have all of that on on a plate in front of me and then I want uh, peanut butter pie of course for dessert what else would I want for dessert and imagine having that kind of experience you allow your mind to wander you you think of the exact meal that you would want and the exact portions that you would want and then all of a sudden it just appears before you And you have exactly what you had imagined, exactly what you asked for in the exact portions that you need. And what are you going to do? You are going to eat every last bite. You're going to have all that you need and nothing that you don't. That is what Jesus is as a savior. He is every single thing that we need and nothing that he is we do not need. The best way to think about this is in the offices of Jesus Christ, prophet and priest and king. He's a prophet who teaches us, who reveals to us the truth of God, the the final message of our salvation. He is our priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin and intercedes for us. He is our king who restrains and conquers all his and our enemies and who subdues us to himself. You see, we are ignorant So we need Christ as our prophet. We are guilty. So we need Christ as our priest. We're rebels. So we need him as our king. We accept him fully. We accept him in all of his offices. We find in our savior everything that we need and nothing that we don't need. We can't have part of Jesus and part of who he is and part of his benefits and leave another part of him uh, uh, unaddressed. You can't have only part of who Jesus is. Some people may say, well, it sounds good to be pardoned from my sin, but I don't really know about having a king to reign over me. I kind of like not having a king. You can't have the priesthood of Jesus without the kingship of Jesus. He is prophet and priest and king. We accept all that he says as utterly true. We accept all that he does for sin as utterly effectual. 
And we accept all that he is in his reign as utterly real in our lives. We talked about that this morning, the kingship of Jesus Christ. You can't have only part of who Jesus is. You can't have his pardon from sin unless you know that he is your king and your Lord. You cannot trust partially on Christ and partially on something else. You can't say, well, Jesus gets me halfway there and then my own righteousness, my own works are going to get me there. Or Jesus does some of the work and something else does the rest. One Puritan pastor puts it this way, to, to trust partially in Christ and partially on something else is to have one foot upon a rock and another on quicksand. Christ will be all in all or nothing at all. He does the whole work, so he expects the whole praise. If he is not able to save to the uttermost, why would we trust in him at all? The Belgian Confession talks about that and puts it wonderfully. What more do we need? Why would we go and look for a savior elsewhere? For Jesus is fully sufficient to save us to the uttermost. That's a great phrase to remember. You're thinking about Jesus Christ. He saves to the uttermost. In other words, he gets you all the way there. Imagine you had to go to Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know why anyone would ever have to go to Madison, Wisconsin, but just imagine. And you go and you ask someone, well, I need to, I need to get to Madison. Can you help me get there? And someone says, I can get you 70% of the way there. And uh, then I'm going to need to drop you off. Unless you're sort of freely hitchhiking, which really isn't a part of our culture anymore, then you're not going to take them up on that offer. Who can get me all the way there? And Jesus Christ gets us all the way there. He gets us all the way to being made right with God. The way that he does that and the way that God does this so gloriously through the gospel is through what theologians call imputed righteousness. That's a long phrase, a, a rather technical phrase, but we understand what imputation means. You walk into a store with a credit or a debit card There's an imputation there that you are sort of in that store with the understanding that you have this ability to purchase that you don't really have. You don't have the cash in your hand, but there is cash somewhere. And uh, that reality is growing more and more tenuous as more of our money and assets just becomes numbers on a screen. But don't think about that. Don't worry about that now. That there's an imputation, that you have this spending or purchasing power. That's something like imputation. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes this point abundantly clear. That there is a righteousness that saves, and the righteousness that saves is by grace, through faith, in Christ. It doesn't depend on law obedience. Because all of our law obedience, all that we would do from our own strength or our own power is going to fall woefully short of God's righteous standard. And we know that. And we understand that. To return to Roman Catholic teaching, which so often our Reformed doctrine is contrasted with that, Roman Catholic teaching generally will say that you are saved not by imputed righteousness, but by infused righteousness. What does that mean? That means that God, by his grace, will work in someone, and by infused grace, cause them to live according to righteousness and according to good works, and on the last day, he will justify them. 
He will justify them as he looks to the righteousness that he has created in them by his grace. Now that's something like how we think about sanctification. We think about God infusing grace into us and bringing about righteousness and bringing about obedience. But when we talk about justification, it's so important that we cling to this wonderful blessing of imputed righteousness, that you look to Jesus Christ and faith receives his satisfaction, his holiness, and righteousness. True faith is that instrument then, the instrument of our justification. When we, we, we speak, here's another big, big idea or concept. What does it mean that faith is the instrument of righteousness? Well, think about instrument like how you would think of an old radio. Um, younger people, you're going to have to bear with me. There were these things that you used to call radios. You would plug it into a wall and you could tune it to a radio station and you'd be able to get a broadcast right into your home from a radio station. The instrument of faith is kind of like a radio. It is not the broadcast itself. I used to listen to Bulls games on the radio when I was a kid because we didn't have cable television. And my radio was not the broadcast itself. But without that radio, I never would have received the broadcast. You see, faith is not righteousness. But it is that which receives righteousness and it is a fitting instrument of our justification because faith is the only thing that human beings do that purely looks outside of ourselves. It's, it's abandoning all hope that righteousness is somewhere in here. It's abandoning all hope that what I need to be righteous and made right with God is somewhere inside of me. I need the work of someone else. Romans 5 wonderfully explicates this, that the obedience of the second Adam, the obedience of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, that is our hope. The sin of the first Adam brought death and condemnation. The obedience of the second Adam brings life and righteousness, which abounds for the many. So faith is that instrument by which we receive the righteousness and satisfaction and holiness of Christ. True and saving faith, then, as we bring this to a close tonight and make some applications, true and saving faith is a spring of peace and joy. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says you you don't see him, but you believe. You have faith, and because of that, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Faith is a spring of peace and joy. Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Those who are given the gift of faith are given this wonderful blessing of inexpressible joy because what is it that overcomes the difficulties of this world? Our faith. This is what overcomes the world, 1 John says. Your faith. Your faith overcomes the world. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
True and saving faith. So true, true faith is a spring of peace and joy. True and saving faith is supernatural. It's the gift of God. It's something that we do not achieve on our own. We don't arrive at this point in our lives or say, well, I guess I need to believe on Jesus Christ now. That doesn't happen without God working. That doesn't happen without God granting what's called uh, the, the habit of faith. He gives sort of the underlying reality of faith in our lives. And then we, enabled by God, enabled by the power of God, reach out and accept Jesus Christ and all that he is. It's a supernatural gift of God. He grants faith, but he does not believe for us. This is one of the ways in which we understand in the book of Romans, at the beginning and at the end, there is this phrase called the obedience of faith, a wonderful little phrase. And that relates to faith being a supernatural gift of God in which he enables us to believe, and then uh, those who are granted that ability to believe will necessarily believe, but they still believe themselves. It's, it's a gift of God, it's by the sovereign grace of God, and yet faith is something that we do, empowered by God, and enabled to do so by him. So the obedience of faith is obeying the call of the gospel. It's not having a dead faith, but a living and an active faith that can do nothing but issue forth in acts of faith and love. That's what a true and saving faith is. We're saved by faith alone. The faith that saves you is never alone. God does his work and brings about uh, a true and a vital and a lasting faith. So saving faith is really our faith. And being justified by God is a one-time irrevocable act. Justification can never be taken away. It's given once and for all. And then faith in Christ is a lifelong thing. It never ends. Can faith be strengthened? Yes, faith can be strengthened as the, as the first of the great theological virtues, the first of the great spiritual virtues. Faith can be strengthened by the means of the word of God and the, the means of grace, the sacraments and prayer. Our faith can grow stronger. Our faith uh, can, can be fortified through the trials of this life. And God oftentimes is pleased to do that. I want to quote uh, a couple of paragraphs as we close this is, I think, a wonderful summary, really, of this whole picture of the Christian life being saved by grace through faith and that faith not being a dead faith, but a living faith. This is Pastor Mark Jones in his book, Faith, Hope, and Love. He says this, Our right to eternal life is based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Nothing can be added to that, not even a single good work. Justification can never be revoked, an inestimable gift we receive by faith alone. But the final goal of our salvation is our glorification and blessed vision of Christ. When we stand before God, our justification, in which we stand clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness, enables us to satisfy the demands of God's righteous and holy law. But we nonetheless have to walk to this destination in order to possess the vision of Christ. And the only path to walk is the path of good works. These works have, of course, been prepared in advance for us to do. 
Not only must we walk this way, we will walk this way. Christ gifts us with sanctification just as much as he does justification. And we can be confident that both will play their appropriate and necessary role in our so great a salvation. That's a wonderful and beautiful picture. Salvation by a true and a saving faith, made right with God, irrevocably, unchangeably, by faith alone. But that true and saving faith is vital. It is living. It issues forth in acts of faith and love. And that faith can be strengthened in the lifelong journey that God lays before us. And he says, continue to trust in your Savior each and every day. Continue to give him all that you are, your greatest degree of love and devotion. Continue looking to him and trusting in that all-sufficient work. And trust that by God's grace, he will bring about greater love and obedience as we look to Jesus more and more and rest in him more and more. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for this chance to gather together and to look at your word and to learn from it. We pray that you uh, would strengthen us for the journey ahead, uh, that we would continually look to Christ and trust in him, and that you would be pleased to abide with us and to, by your Spirit, bring about um, a stronger faith and a deeper faith that um, issues forth in a life filled with, with love and obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.